Hey everybody, I wanted to preface this episode because it's a bit of a departure from the usual format. I had the pleasure of being a guest co-host on the Calgary International Film Festival's podcast, Movie Night with Sif, on CJSW. We interviewed the exceptional comedic actor Connor Ratliff, and he was incredibly generous with his time and his candor. Unfortunately, Movie Night with Sif episodes must be cut down to 30 minutes for air, and our chat was over an hour. CGSW has kindly allowed me to release the full interview right here on Repodcasting's feed. If you're not already subscribed to Movie Night with Sif, go do that now on Spotify or Apple Podcasts or through Sif's website. Or if you're a fan of live radio, and I hope you are, you can listen to it on CGSW on the first Tuesday of each month at 11.30 a.m. and again at 8.30 p.m. And that's in Mountain Time. Thanks again to Connor Ratliff for the great interview, and thanks to CGSW for airing this show and letting me share the extended version here. Hope you enjoy it. Now on to the show. Have you ever watched a movie and wondered why they cast that woman or that guy? Well, here's our chance to give it a try. We're repodcasting. You're listening to CGSW 90.9 FM. Welcome, welcome everyone to Movie Night with Sif. I'm your host Gabby and guest hosting today we have Sif's engagement manager, Lucia Julio. Say hi Lucia. Hi. Today's guest is none other than American comedy star Connor Ratliff. You may know Connor from his work on hit comedy shows like Broad City, The Marvelous Mrs. Maisel, and Search Party. If you're an improv fan and Star Wars enthusiast, then you might know him from the hilarious George Lucas talk show, where he interviews real entertainers as themselves while in character as director George Lucas. Connor is also hot off of a webby win for the final episode of his podcast, Dead Eyes, in which he set out to solve the very stupid mystery of why Tom Hanks fired him from the show Band of Brothers in the year 2000. The episode sees Connor and Tom Hanks sit down for a chat 23 years and 31 podcast episodes later. Today, this brilliant comedian joins us to talk all about his time in comedy, his life-changing beef with Tom Hanks, and the ins and outs of being retired filmmaker George Lucas. Connor, how are you doing today? I'm doing great. What a what a lovely introduction. Uh, that's very kind of you to say all that. <laughs> we all try, true. we try. It's all true. It's all facts from the internet, you know. <laughs> well, I can't. I'm not going to argue with the facts. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, first off, we want to say congratulations on your Webby Award win for the individual podcast episode for Dead Eyes. Now, before we dive into the podcast, though, mm-hmm. we got to go back to the beginning. You know, and all, sure. like I want to I want to get really like because you're a very private person and we'll talk about this later. But on the Internet, there's not much information about your origins. I did, however, find out that you actually started out wanting to be a dramatic actor. If I'm mm-hmm. not mistaken, you went to the Liverpool Institute of Performing Arts. All right. And then you went out to London to pursue, quote unquote, serious acting. Yeah. Yeah. Even in the world of dramatic acting, I always thought, well, I'll be the funny person in the play, you know. But, you know, I did like, uh, I did heavy plays. I did, you know, I was the lead in a production of Ordinary People, which is about as heavy a play as, you, you know, it's just all about like grief and, and uh, <laughs> suicidal ideation. It was just like really intense stuff. Yeah, but I just, to me, it's all just pretending, you know, like. It is sometimes more fun to pretend really serious stuff than it is to, you know, try to make people laugh, you know? Yeah. But I I, I just liked, you know, when I was very young, I wanted to be a cartoonist. And then I started doing plays and I realized, like, well, this is kind of scratching the same itch, but I don't have to draw. Um, (laughs) You know, that, that, that it's sort of like, oh, I can just pretend to be a character rather than drawing characters and making them up that way. And it's more social, you know, it's it's um, you do it with other people. And so cartooning sort of fell by the wayside. And, you know, one of the things that the podcast talks about a little bit is sort of like you start doing plays as a kid and it's fun and everybody's nice. And then you like, oh, I want to study this. And then you do it in school and it's a little more like work. It's still fun, but it's not as much fun as it was when you were doing plays with your friends. And then you try to do it professionally, and now it's like, well, now you're just struggling to get anyone to let you do something, and it's not as much fun, and you you just keep getting further and further away from the thing that you wanted to do, which is just pretend to be characters, you know? Yeah. Well, yeah. How, does, how does this, like, what's the story? How did that lead to comedy in New York City rather than, like, dramatic, quote-unquote, serious acting in London? 
I mean, I I did a play at the Royal Court in London, and for like a couple months, I thought, oh great, this is one how I'm gonna make my living from now on. It was amazing that you rehearse for a few weeks, and then when you start doing the play, it's just like I work in the evening when I do the play, and I have the whole day off, and I can make rent. And then the play ends, and you think, well, where's the next thing? And then over a year went by, and there was nothing, and. Then I had my Band of Brothers experience, which looked like it was going to be like, oh, now I'm working again. And then I wasn't working again. And then I moved back to America and I, for a little while, tried to be an actor in New York. And it was just too hard. I couldn't get anything going. Even when you try to be a self-starter, like I wrote and starred in a play and I put it up in New York and you realize, oh, God, it's impossible. Like, what I really needed was like thousands of dollars of marketing uh, to get, like, you think, oh, I'll put on a play in New York, and then what you don't realize is, like, you're competing with every other play in New York, and you're competing with also just, like, people who could just go home and watch, uh, you know, HBO or something. And they don't need mm-hmm. to spend $25 to go see some unknown person in a play that may or may not be terrible, you know? Yeah. And so I gave up for about a decade, and I just sort of was like, well, it's something I'm good at, but I can't do it professionally. There's just I just don't know how to do it. And I started going to see things at a theater called the Upright Citizens Brigade Theater. And I liked what I saw and the the tickets were really cheap. And so I went and saw a bunch of stuff there. And I started asking, like, how do you do shows? How do people get on the stage here? Like, maybe I'd want to put up a show. And they said, well, you got to take classes. And I was like, oh, never mind. I I don't want to take any more classes. I've already been to drama drama school in two different countries. I don't want to do that anymore. And then at a certain point, my parents, my dad had done improv back in Chicago, back in the early 70s. And my parents were sort of the opposite of a lot of uh, parents of people who do improv. Because a lot of of people who do improv are having to, they have to explain to their parents, well, what is this? And, you know, why can't you make a living at it, et cetera? (laughs) My parents were like, you should take classes. Amy Poehler has a theater and it has has a school. And I was like, I don't know. And they were really pushing me. So finally... I think one of my parents, I think my mom said, like, you know, you could just sign up for a class, go try it out. If you don't like it, don't finish the class. And I took an improv class and I, I was not good at it. I like, I knew how to be funny, but I didn't know how to do improv. Mm -hmm. It's a very complicated, specific skill. And I'm like, I want to figure out how to do this. And then for years, I just was performing at that theater and not trying to do... I was still working at a bookstore in Union Square. I was not trying to be a professional actor because I knew what that was. Uh, being a professional actor is you spend all of your time trying to get work and mostly not getting it. And I just had no interest in doing that. And then at a certain point, I, I like I booked a commercial. Uh, somebody like convinced me to audition for a commercial, and I booked it. And it was like a lottery commercial... And I made more money on that two days of work than I made the whole year working like five and a half days a week at the bookstore. And I was Ooh. like, oh, I probably need to consider trying this again. Mm. But it is like, you know, even with the success of the podcast, which, you know, casting people and producers and everybody who's in a position to cast me in something seems to have listened to the podcast and likes it. And it still doesn't mean that, like, the jobs come flowing in. I think I've maybe gotten two jobs off of the podcast where I know the reason that they were interested was because they heard me on the podcast. And it might be that there's a hundred people who have me in mind for something down the road. Oh, maybe he'd be good for this. Like, you you have to be right for the job. And you have to be more right for the job than every other person who's... That's the part that kills. Yeah. that... And that's also the part that makes it okay because I used to think, oh, if I don't book something, it's a reflection on me. And the thing that you really have to wrap your mind around is that almost all of the time, you could be second place for a thousand jobs. Mm -hmm. You might as well be the last person they wanted for it in terms of how it affects your life. You could be runner up for every acting job you ever auditioned for. Mm -hmm. And the result is the same if you were the person that they least wanted for the job and that you don't get the job. Yep. You just have to hope that eventually there'll be a role, you know, that the next thing will be something where it's like you are that person who is, you know, 
causing disappointment for the hundred other people who want that job, <laughs> you know? It's a very weird position to be in where you realize that, like, I did an episode of the podcast where I tracked down, I had auditioned for the show The Blacklist a bunch of times, and I realized I'd done it so many times that when I finally booked one, I started watching the show and I realized, oh, there's, like, a bunch of people who got parts that I tried out for mm-hmm. and they were all different than me like no there was no actor who booked the part who looked or sounded like me when they got the part and i'm like oh that's really interesting because it's not that it's not that there was something about me it's that they were looking for they were literally looking for someone else yeah. to play this role but i also realized that i then heard from somebody who contacted me afterwards it was like i auditioned for the part you got and i'm like oh, oh when you do book a part you become that person for all the other people who went in that same room of course it's a very psychologically messy uh <laughs> job for artistically inclined people who are already emotionally vulnerable so sensitive to be, yeah like for for over you know uh, uh one of the f- common reactions particularly in the early days of the podcast was like get over it and i'm like oh boy you don't know <laughs> You don't know what actors are like. Or, you don't know what that's it's about. It's just like, I take everything personally, you know? Yeah. Yeah, it's hard not to because, like, I do copywriting. If I'm the third best copywriter at whatever job I apply to, I maybe won't get that job, but there's also, like, ten other jobs that I can apply for. And it's just, the odds are so much better when you have just, like, a normal job. And yeah. when they reject you, when they're like, so sorry, we've decided to go another way, it's not because... We decided to go for somebody else, too short, too ethnic, bye. <laughs> like, it's not, so it's hard to not take it personally because they're like, you just didn't have the right look or like, we didn't like the vibe or like, we're going for a more like, experience. you know, it is personal. And they also, they don't know. Like when they're, most of the yeah. time when they are looking for someone, they're browsing, you know, like yeah. they're basically like, we're waiting for this person to walk in the room and they're desperately hoping that you will be that person when you walk in the room. And when you're not, they're just like, ah, uh, yeah, you know, he's good. It's just not, that's not what we're looking for. And then the, the person finally walks in there or, or, and I'm sure this has happened. I'm sure there are times where I've auditioned for something where I've gotten the part and then the next person's twice as good. And, oh, yeah. and without even knowing it, I've lost the part. Like, I'm sure that must happen where you're like, Hey, that guy's pretty good. And then the next guy comes in and they're like, that guy's great. <laughs> and you, you know, you, you didn't even know you had it, you know? Yeah. Maybe you'll live long enough to see yourself become the villain and become like a casting director. <laughs> I, you know, I'm sure I already have become the villain at some point because I'm sure there was a point where I was working on something and I put some people in it or something and somebody else was like, hey, how come, how come I'm not in that like dumb little comedy video or something? Or how come I wasn't asked to sit in for that improv show? You know, like you, you don't even know the number of times that you, you know, you think you're making one choice. You don't realize you're also making the choice to not ask five other people or something, you know? Sure. Yeah. 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 I mean, I've had people, honestly, working on the podcast because we recorded so many conversations. There were people who got bumped from every season of the show. <laughs> I had this interview in season one because I had this I had this idea for a, an episode or a series of episodes about the TV show Billions. Because mm. Damian Lewis was the actor I was supposed to act opposite in Band of Brothers. He's one of the main actors on that show. And there's a couple of other actors on that show that are kind of in the same, I get compared to as being in sort of the same bearded white guy character actor quadrant of like Paul Giamatti and David Costable. And I would always look at that show and feel like, you know, and another friend of mine who, uh, Michael Cyril Crichton, who I've acted with and is a really talented, you know, bearded white guy character actor. Uh, he was in a little part in an episode of Billions, and I'm like, man, I like, I feel like I need to like do an episode about like, there's something about this show that feels like I have this weird connection to it. I've never been on it. I've never, I've auditioned for it, I think. And so I interviewed Brian Koppelman, who's one of the creators and producers of the show, for an episode in season one oh. that then ended up getting bumped because there was the pandemic and we had a couple of other guests like Seth Rogen and Ron Livingston who the episode he was supposed to be in didn't happen. Then in season two, the same thing happened where he got bumped. And in season three, I'm like, we finally got to use this interview. It's a really good interview. But I'm like, by that point, the, the idea of the episode had changed. Oh, no. And he ended up getting bumped by Tom Hanks, basically, because <laughs> yeah. there was a point where it was just like, you know, we keep 
planning for things and then something else happens and now you have more interviews than you have episodes and i feel really bad because i know he's asked a couple times like hey is my episode coming out i'm like oh no it just got bumped from another season (laughs) and it is like man it is hard when you're in charge of the show that you have to make all these decisions and they affect people who are involved at a lesser level sure i'm sure he understood getting bumped by tom hanks though Yes, yes. I mean, it's just like there comes a point where it's just like we essentially wasted uh, an afternoon of his time, like an hour of his very busy afternoon to have a really good conversation that just never slotted into an episode that ended up getting released. Maybe a future bonus episode? I mean, maybe it's one, (laughs) you know, we it's hard to know what the future of the podcast is at this point, whether it's really done or whether I'll find a, a, a. I did have a hook for doing a fourth season that I don't think is going to happen. Hmm. But I'm always, I'll always leave the door open for more because I do feel like there's more to explore thematically in that world of, of rejection and success and failure. For sure. I listened to Dead Eyes like as it aired live, I guess would be the word. Yeah. Because <laughs> when Paul Shear recommended it on his podcast, um, I started listening. And it was clear that like a lot of actors and people in the industry really connected to the story. Obviously, it's about the mm-hmm. industry, but it also was really like entertaining and poignant. And the number of people that you actually got to speak with who were involved directly or indirectly with Band of Brothers, it was like really impressive. <laughs> so when you started the show, um, like how many episode ideas did you have when you were like just planning it out? I had about 20 or 25 ideas for episodes. Oh, wow. Because initially, that was one of the things that when we were developing the show, we would get pushback where people would be like, you can only really do this for like three or four episodes. (laughs) And I just had a different idea of it because I sort of felt like as long as the episodes were interesting, you only needed the slightest little thread to bring it back to i basically had like a system which is i'd write down a list of like who do i think will talk to me that would be the first thing Mm -hmm. and then is there a way to connect them either to my career and some sort of like failure or rejection or do they have a tom hanks connection and if they have a tom hanks connection i don't need anything else i can just (laughs) talk to them about that so like with any guest that like when we started out i was like I'm friends with Bobby Moynihan. We've been on an improv team together and he's in the David S. Pumpkins sketch. So I'm oh, like, yeah. that's an episode. Nice. Because he's one of the dancing skeletons on that Saturday Night Live sketch. That's all I need is like, <laughs> just tell me about that. And that was like one of the episodes. And and then I was sort of like, anything that's like a weird casting bad experience, I can make that work. I don't even need a Tom Hanks hook. One of the last in-person auditions I did before the pandemic hit, I was auditioning for a very a, a nice casting director who likes me a lot. I don't think I've ever booked anything through them, but they clearly like to bring me in for stuff. And I did a take of the audition in the room, and then this person was like, that's great, you got it. And then they started to talk to me about this, said, hey um, – has your episode of uh, such and such a show come out yet? And I said, oh, no, I didn't book that. You're thinking of, and I named an actor who's similar to me who had booked the role. And she was like, oh, my God, I'm so (laughs) embarrassed. I'm so mortified. And she said, well, what else are you working on? I said, well, I'm doing this podcast. I said, this could find its way into an episode. And she was like, oh, no, no. I'm like, like, every bad experience, or even good experience, if it's interesting, Mm -hmm. I was like, this could be an episode of the podcast. So I had like 25 ideas. Some of those ideas were like, talk to, like one of the ideas was talk to Tom Hanks. That was (laughs) like, that was an idea that almost didn't count as a real idea when you're pitching the (laughs) podcast because they're like, well, of course you want that. But Mm -hmm. there were people that I wanted to talk to that I was just, I didn't have a way to get to talk to them. But I was sort of like, every time someone came along, like, Seth Rogen only came onto the podcast initially because Bobby Moynihan had mentioned him. Mm -hmm. And then he was listening to the episode and he's like, oh, I want to correct the, he he thinks we uh, cut his scene for this reason. He goes, that's not not why at all. So he was messaging me and I was like, you should come on the podcast. And he's like, 
well, I did audition for Band of Brothers and didn't get in. I'm like, I didn't even need that much. Yeah. But now we have a hook. <laughs> wow. And there was a similar thing where there was a point where we heard from, we heard that Elijah Wood liked the podcast. And I immediately was like, we got to get him on. And I didn't know what our, I'm like, I don't know what the idea is, but we'll find it. And so I'm looking through Elijah Wood's IMDb and I'm like, there's got to be a connection. And then I'm like, oh, he's in this movie Radio Flyer where Tom Hanks plays the adult version of his character. Mm-hmm. That's one of his first, one of Elijah Wood's first movies. And I'm like, that's not, it's not a like really popular movie that everybody knows. So maybe <laughs> there's not enough for a whole episode. And then we were like, what if we get the actor who played a small Josh Baskin and big? What if we get the actor who played young Forrest Gump? Like now we have three, oh, now it's an episode. Idea. And it really is, a lot of it is sort of like the improv training helped generate ideas for episodes because you'd sort of just be like, it would be the equivalent of if you were doing a show and you said, we just need a suggestion. And someone yelled out Tom Hanks and you'd be like, (laughs) what do I do a scene about? You know? And uh, thankfully that's never happened. I've never done an improv show where someone's yelled it out. I'm glad that doesn't happen all the time now. Right. But I could do it. I could do it. If if people do come to an improv show and yell out Tom Hanks, I can do (laughs) endless scenes. I I know everything. Yeah, Um, sure. Speaking but, of the um, man in question, though, yeah, can you talk me through the day that you found out that Tom Hanks not only knew about the podcast, but was willing to come on the show? Well, I had a feeling, you know, there were various points where you get the feeling where you're like, he must know by now. And then there was the point where we knew there was awareness, like when it was Paul Shear who initially like passed along my email to Colin Hanks. He's like, you want me to? I know him. I'm friendly with him. I can pass this along. And there was a point where I realized like, okay, there must be, it was getting enough attention in the press that I thought it surely has like, if not crossed his radar, it's at least crossed the radar of like his people, Mm -hmm. you know, that they must know about it by now. And then there were, when I interviewed Colin Hanks for his episode, there was the point where he talked about the family text chain about that. They were like, the kids are listening. (laughs) And, and I was le- like, I was learning about that in real time in terms of how aware they were of it. So but his then, kids were fans of the pod. Yeah. From like early on, they were like, you got to check this out. And I think because it's like, it's a funny thing to hear about your dad. And it's also like, it's not too negative. It's not a thing that's going to be like, you're right. gonna, it's not an expose that like it's <laughs> playing with the, it's, it's playing with those like narrative tools but it's also for people who listen all the way to the end credits of the episode, there's always like, uh, you know, 60 seconds of me sort of like, there's a little bit of like geeking out. I'd always find a connection to talk about some Tom Hanks thing post credits. And I'm like, this is sort of like my little Tom Hanks fan podcast at the end of each episode. But then, you know, I had recorded the conversation with Colin and then I think more than a month went by maybe like a month and a half or something. And I just got an email out of nowhere. Like it was just a Tuesday and I just literally hit refresh on my email. And there was this email from Tom Hanks asking, saying that he'd be willing to be on the podcast. And, uh, that was really like surreal. Like I, I, I don't think I'll ever lose the feeling of like staring at that email. Not sure if it's real (laughs) thinking it must be real because I was like, there's too many things about this that if someone was pranking me, they would cut this part because it's, you know, baffling, you know, like you don't (laughs) understand what someone's like email, like signature is or what the email address is or any of those things where I'm like, I don't think this would be what any of my comedian, like if I, I was thinking like, I know a lot of comedians. Is there anyone who would do this to me? I'm like, maybe, I feel like maybe a comedian might... would maybe take the angle of sending you an angry email rather than being like, oh, I'm going to come on the show. Like, it feels like too obvious of a thing to be a joke that he want to come on. Yeah. Because then and what's I, the follow through? He's not going to come on if it's not him. I think that, well, that's obviously why it didn't happen is like most of my comedian friends are kind and not like excessively <laughs> cruel. Like we don't, I don't have any like uh, friends that have that sort of jackass mentality of like, let's watch you suffer a little. That's what's fun. <laughs> but Yeah, it was just, like, processing, and even, like, I didn't know until he was in the room with me 
how much he knew or didn't know. And what became apparent in conversation was that, like, I think his team had started listening to the podcast initially out of just professional obligation. We got to be, we got to get it in case there's anything we need to get ahead of here, you know? And then I think they, they were like, Oh, we like it. So it was sort of like part of the job that also was like enjoyable that like, yeah, now we just listen because it's like a fun show that is sort of connected to our boss. And the aftermath of recording the conversation together, like I, I genuinely didn't know if like, at every stage since then, I've sort of felt like, well, maybe this is the final, like, punctuation on this experience. Like, I thought maybe that day when I talked to him, I'm like, maybe this is the truly the end of, this is a, the only time we'll ever interact. He has been so unsurprisingly lovely in every interaction we've had since then. And he cast me in the audiobook of his novel. He's got this book out called The Making of Another Major Motion Picture Masterpiece. And it's a fictionalized account of the making of, like, a superhero movie in the 2020s post-COVID, like, reality of movie making. And it draws on all of his actual experience on sets making movies. Like, the level of detail. Every time you meet a character in this book, like, they'll say, well, here's the person who's the gopher on the set who's going to get the ice because they suddenly need 12 bags of ice for this shot but let me tell you where they came from and then it will sort of go into this cul-de-sac where you'll learn this person's backstory that person's backstory there is a character there is a i'm not going to spoil anything from the plot of the (laughs) novel but when you get to the character that i am playing in the audiobook there are several things that are either marvelously confirmations of the dead eyes story in the sense of like actors getting fired and why they are fired (laughs) or the existence of the podcast while he was writing the novel fed into the, uh, the plot line in a way that I think is, I I, I do sort of think of the, the audio book of his novel being like in conversation with, if you listen to 31 episodes of dead eyes, here's a thing that is like the guy who was the target the whole time if this book had come out before we had talked, we would have maybe had to do multiple episodes, like a <laughs> deep dive of like, what is he saying here? It truly wow. would have been a mind blower if I hadn't talked to Tom Hanks and I had read this book in which actors are fired and yeah. <laughs> uh, concerns about eyes come up. And oh, no. you know, it's just very, very fun. <laughs> just to know that like these things affect uh, one another in ways that I think are fun. That's amazing. Well, um, switching gears a little bit, one of your main creative projects over the past decade, almost, has been the George Lucas Talk Show, where you play retired filmmaker George Lucas, leading an interview with a panel of guests. So this concept started out as a live improv show at UCB. Yeah. So you have an entire documentary coming out about this, but can you speak on the show's origins and its evolution? Yeah, I used to, you know, I'm exactly the age where, like, the first memory I can really remember is, like, being three years old and seeing the 1978 re-release of Star Wars. So, Mm -hmm. like, my first, like, ten years, so much of my time was, like, playing with Star Wars toys and making up my own... Back then, you know, a movie would come out and then a couple of years would go by. And so I, I was thinking about this recently where, like, now... If I was a kid now, I don't know if I would be a Star Wars fan because you have to watch a thousand things to know what's going on. Whereas when I was a kid, it would be like, oh, a second one's coming out next year. So most of the time I was playing with the action figures and making up my own stories. And there was a point in the 90s when George Lucas started doing his special editions where he would go back and tinker with the movies. And the new stuff that was added, like the effects looked great, but when he'd add a new scene, like a lot of people, I wasn't wild about it. I was like, (laughs) oh, I don't know if like this is... I don't know if, and then they announced he's going to make new Star Wars movies. And I'm like, I'm excited, but also based on the new scenes, I don't know if these are going to be great. Liking. Wow. And instead of getting mad about it, which seems to, for some reason, be a default reaction for a lot of Star Wars fans. If they don't like a Star Wars thing, rather than being grateful for a life of <laughs> Star Wars fun, they decide to act like a war crime has yeah. been committed. Yeah. Um, and get mad at everyone and get mad at anyone who likes it. And my reaction was that I thought it was very funny that the new scenes were not as good as the old scenes. And when the prequels came out, I was like, 
this is kind of funny because, you know, these are still, you know, he's so successful and he's changed the way movies are made multiple times that when George Lucas fails at something, it's still more successful than anything yeah. that I could ever <laughs> dream of accomplishing. Yeah. His biggest flop is still just like a goal of mine to like, could I get anywhere near that? And, and I also think like, He's someone who takes big risks. I still think Jar Jar Binks, for all the things that are wrong with the movie, that The Phantom Menace, that was a movie that he could have easily just made a movie that would have pleased most people. And he's like, no, I want there to be a major comedy character who is just centered to all of this. And he's like silly and it's slapstick and it's going to be a completely digital character. And to me, I always thought that was the equivalent of him booking out five stadiums to do a stand-up tour. It was just like, <laughs> you're just like going to try this. Um, and so I started doing an impression of George Lucas for my friends in the 90s, where I would sort of, they would ask me questions about, why'd you do this, George? And I'd be like, well, because I thought it would really be, you know, just sort of like entertain them with, here's what I'm going to do next. I would make up things that George was going to, I would always make up things that George was going to change about the Star Wars movies. And it was just to make my friends laugh. And then there was a point where I wanted to do a show at UCB and I thought, ah, what's a hook that could get people in the door so they're not, I don't just have to have them come in because, you know, people hadn't heard of me. I wasn't going to be able to do like the Connor Ratliff show and have anybody show up. So I'm like, oh, if I, if I make it the George Lucas talk show, it's really funny to me that he'd be a bad talk show host. (laughs) So I thought, even if it's bad, that can sort of be the joke of it. And if it's good, it can be just fun because it's good. Mm-hmm. And people will come because they see the George Lucas talk. So oh they know God. what they think they know what that is. Or it'll be like, <laughs> which is funny because the show is not as Star Warsy as people might think, because we're always looking for any tangent to get away from Star Wars. And to the extent that we use it, it's to make guests who are not Star Wars adjacent to have George be like, relating it to like oh well that's like when ira glass was on the show i was saying to him as george you and i basically do the same job and he's like i was like what are you talking about we don't i'm like we do all the same things you're a movie producer i'm a movie producer we both worked in public radio and he's like when when did you I'm like the the npr uh star wars audio plays from the early 1980s which were huge public and wow. so I'm like we are the same you and i um we're storytellers you know and so like it's always fun to have Amy Mann came on the show years ago when we were out in L.A., and I did not know Amy Mann at all at that point, other than just as a fan of her music. And she's like, I have never, I don't know anything about Star Wars. I said, it's fine. It won't matter. Just come on the show. It'll be fun. And immediately, one of the things I started relating to her is that we'd both been nominated for Oscars and lost. <laughs> and it's just like, we're the same, you and I. You know, <laughs> Star Wars didn't win, and neither did Save Me from Magnolia. We know what it's like. Uh, and to be mad at the people who uh, beat us for the Oscar, you know? And so really it's evolved into a different thing over the years because, you know, we did over 300 hours of live streaming. You know, it was a monthly show at UCB, which is a good, reasonable pace. Once a month, I'd spray my hair white. (laughs) We'd do this show at midnight at a comedy theater, and then a month would go by. So in, I think, a month of doing the live stream we'd already done more hours of show than we'd done in like six years at the theater wow and it's really warped to the point where now you know we have our own sort of lore within the show but it's also like you could walk in off the street and watch the first one you've ever seen and it would probably make as much sense as it would to someone who's watched them all because it's sort of like it's my own weird version of George Lucas, which is like a successful guy who also fails a lot because he's so (laughs) ambitious that he's not content to just, you know, do the same thing. And also sometimes he does things that are not, that don't play to his strengths. He's also made movies that like radio land murders, which is a comedy that he made that almost no one went to go see. It didn't get good reviews, but it's the first like movie that ever used like digital sets to create like a period location. Okay. And so it's like everything we watch now owes some tip of the hat to radio land murders and the technology that he developed that now, if you're watching, you know, Perry Mason and HBO, it's like, yeah, 
they did this on Radioland Murders first. That's oh how God. they create, like, you know, uh, there's also, like, you almost can't watch any movie that at the end it doesn't say the the sound was done at Skywalker Sound. He's just, like, yeah. he touches every aspect of the culture within one degree, you know? For sure. Have you ever had people come to the UCB show and complain that George Lucas isn't there? Yes. We've had people, <laughs> not a lot, because most people... What's what I love about it when it happens. One of the reasons we avoided like it's never been a podcast. There were years where people were like, Do you want to make it a podcast? And I said, The problem is if it's a podcast, people will be getting mad all the time because they'll see the George Lucas talk show and there's nothing indicating that it's not him. Right. Really. Right. Yeah. And it's a very visual show. Well, also, aside from the visual, I never felt guilty when someone would come to the show and be angry that it's not the real George Lucas because my feeling was always you showed up five minutes to midnight in the <laughs> East village of New York on a Friday night because you thought that septuagenarian filmmaker George Lucas had flown across the country to do a show that costs $5 to get into. And you thought there would be tickets left like if you buy into all of those things you thought you could just stroll up to the box office a few minutes before midnight and buy two tickets that new york city would not have been able to sell out a 120 seat theater with george lucas at midnight for five dollars with guests sell your soul for a ticket to see him at comic-con much less yes so i would be like the fact that you thought it was possible tells me that you're you're dealing with an unrealistic approach to the way life and reality work. Yeah, that's so I, fair. I was always delighted when I found out there was a couple that was very angry. They showed up. <laughs> they well, showed up. Expecting George Lucas at the impression. Insanity. Well, speaking yeah. of the real life George Lucas, now that you've had Tom Hanks on Dead Eyes, are you pursuing him as a potential talk show guest? Or like how aware is he of the of the show? We, you know, the closest we've come, we have we have a lot of um, the fact that the show has been allowed to exist for as long as it has is always been, I think, at the we've never gotten a cease and desist for anything we've ever done. That was my follow up question. If you've never gotten a cease and, <laughs> and desist. George Lucas famously is very not just tolerant. He likes being spoofed. He appreciates it. Like Legend. when Robot Chicken used to make fun of him. He didn't get mad. He showed up to do cameos, and then he basically hired the whole staff and said, let's make a Star Wars animated comedy show (laughs) that he made 39 episodes of without selling it to a network. He just self-funded them, and they are sitting in the Disney vault because they have not been released. Oh, no. Uh, That's one of the campaigns of the show is to for Disney to release Star Wars detours. But he's someone who – there's a great story. I love this story about George Lucas uh, in the early days of Star Wars – I think it was when Empire Strikes Back came out. Mad Magazine did a parody of Empire Strikes Back. And they got a letter from Lucas's lawyers saying, uh, you are violating the the trademarks. You, are, um, you need to retract this issue, pull this issue off the stands, and delete the story. And they responded by sending a photocopy of a letter they had already received from George Lucas <laughs> saying that, Mort Drucker, the illustrator for it, was as good as Leonardo da Vinci. He was like a genius. (laughs) And basically was like asking, can I buy the artwork from this spoof? Because he loved it so much. Amazing. So he's always been someone who has really uh, been a friend to anyone who's, you know, like his only request of Mel Brooks when he did Spaceballs was like, don't merchandise it. Because it'll be competing with the Star Wars merchandise. Interesting. But I think the closest we've come is we've done Sketchfest, and whenever we go out to San Francisco to do Sketchfest, we have always asked to say, you know, like, is there a way that we can make this happen there? And we've gotten a thoughtful response, but I think part of the problem is, I think we've only gone out to do it, I think, the one time, but we were scheduled to do it twice because of the pandemic rescheduling. Mm -hmm. Um, so we had asked a couple times. Our slot was like 9.30 or 10.30 on a Friday night. So I think we'll never know whether if we had a 6 p.m. slot, maybe that would have been. What we've been told is like if we were ever in a situation where it was convenient for him, we'd have a decent shot at it. I would love to have him on the show. 
one of the running things the, for years now because the the Lucas Museum of Narrative Art is getting ready in a year or two now to open in LA, which that's sort of been his big post filmmaking project. And we talk about the museum all the time. And there are so many people who have learned about the museum's future existence from our show, including people who thought it was a bit that we were doing. And then they would go, like the, my favorite thing is when there are people who like think it's a bit, and then they'll discover that it's like almost finished being built in LA. And they're like, wait, (laughs) this isn't something that you guys made up. We, we did it. We put out a song. I wrote this song and recorded about the Lucas museum of narrative art and an animator named uh, Ricky Barty made a, a beautiful little animated video for it. And I know that the people who, at least some of the people who are involved in running the museum or setting up the museum, they like, oh yeah, we sing that song. Like we play that song. Like, because you know, how often, how many museums have songs that fans write about them years before the museum even opens? Oh, wow. We are hoping to at some point make some sort of connection because the show, among many things, is just like a a valentine to like how important he is to us as an artist like he and comedically what i like about him is that like he isn't just like non-stop success he is like always taking big swings and to me that there's nothing funnier than people trying really hard <laughs> well you know? you know taking into note that he's like an inspiration to you as i mentioned as lucia mentioned actually before you were making it you made a documentary actually about your experience titled i'm george lucas a connor ratliff story um, I, I, I cooperated with the documentary. There's some very talented filmmakers who made, who they actually approached us asking, could they film an episode of the show just to document it professionally? And then we said, well, how about you document like the making of the show? Uh, and it ended up eating like a year and a half of their lives up to, but I was like, this is a show that sort of like exists at the level it exists at. It doesn't really have the ambition to become, we were never trying to become a TV show or a big thing. And I'm like, that is a very particular subculture. It largely is a doc that's sort of about like, what's it like to like sort of throw all your energy into like a small little corner of the New York comedy scene. Well, that was my uh, follow-up is like, how did the idea of the documentary even come about? I think I, partly I was thinking when I was growing up, if in the nineties, someone had made a documentary about like the comedy shows that were going on at like Largo in Los Angeles when like the early days of like Mr. Show and things like that mm-hmm. were all sort of like happening on that scene. I would have been so excited to see that. I'd still love it. If that, if that footage existed, if there was a documentary about that, I'd still like to see what's happening in this place that I couldn't get to at that time. And I thought it might be nice to document us doing this show in New York. And it actually, it ended up being, it sort of starts and we're in the East village and then UCB buys this off Broadway theater on 42nd street. And so the show expands. Now we're in an off Broadway theater where people have done the great plays have been performed on the stage. And we're doing the George Lucas talk show on it. And then during the making of the documentary, the pandemic hits and the whole, like there's a sequence in the movie where one of the filmmakers was able to follow someone. We were not able to, I was in Missouri. Everyone else was in lockdown. We basically have footage of the theater with now like broken glass on the floor. And they're like taking all of our show stuff out of the storage room because it's all shutting down. it's like, I'm really happy that we agreed to have them document what, like at the time I'm like, what is the story of this documentary? It's actually about the last two years of this show before everything changes. Cause even now when we do the show live, it's no longer a monthly show. It's no longer at the same place. It's live streamed. We're no longer, this was when it was a show where we didn't have an online presence. So if, if you weren't in the room to see the show, you missed it. Yeah. So it's great to have this little document of the show that, you know, that's all that's sort of left of that era of it. Now when we do a show, we put it up on YouTube. You can see there's 400 hours of show from like 2020 on that you can see online, but like it's sort of a documentary about the comedy scene in New York in the final year before the pandemic, you know, the New York comedy scene still has not fully recovered from, you know, the audience is not fully back. Some of them are, but some of them, you know, you break those patterns and those habits. We're not doing shows in the same buildings or in the same neighborhoods. You know, it's kind of like the documentary is automatically now a time capsule 
of an era that feels like it was a decade ago, even though it was yeah, yeah. three years ago. Or so if people want to get a glimpse into that time capsule, when and where will they be able to see it? Well, that's the question. I know that we have been helpful to the documentary team as much as we can in terms of, but right now they're going through the process of submitting the festivals and looking to where they want to make their premiere. And so I'm just waiting to hear from them when they tell me, hey, we booked one. We're going to have our world premiere at this festival or that festival. And then hopefully if it plays some festivals, we'll be able to take the George Lucas talk show around. Ideally, I'd like to be able to do Q&As about the documentary and then also either the night before or the night after be like, we're also going to do a George Lucas talk show uh, oh in town. God. So so ideally, if it wherever it plays, people will be able to see the doc and then maybe either go see the show before they see the doc or go see a show after they see the doc which I think is a unique kind of experience for a documentary to be able to have the thing that it's about kind of travel with it and kind of interact with the documentary in that way. Yeah. Well, our submission deadline's coming up. So if you want to submit it to the Calgary International Film Festival. I hope they, I, I, I assume that they have. It would be great. It would be great. <laughs> the only thing I'm hoping at this point is because we're getting ready to go to Edinburgh for the Festival Fringe because I've written a, um, we're bringing the George Lucas Talk Show to the Fringe because I've always wanted to do that. But we've also, I've written a play called The Baron and the Junk Dealer, yes, which is a George Lucas talk show original play. Oh. It doesn't require, like, you should just be able to walk in off the street never having seen George Lucas talk show or Star Wars or anything and just watch it as a science fiction tragic comedy. Okay, nice. But there are multiple layers to the play in that there is a way to watch it that is almost as if this is George and Watto putting on a play. Right. Mm -hmm. In which they play other characters than George and Watto. Wow. But that is what we're like right in the think of now because we're going to be doing like 22 shows in a row of that. And then I'm going to be doing at the end of the month in Edinburgh, I will be doing four one-man shows as George Lucas, which will be entirely improvised called (laughs) George Prov. Wow. And it's funny because that part doesn't make me nervous at all. Like the play, I'm like, there's all these, we got to make sure we have this. We got to make sure we (laughs) have that. And then at the end of it, I have four shows where I don't know what will happen, which for most people is like the ultimate anxiety dream. Mm -hmm. But for me, it's just like, yeah, and that's the end of August. That'll be a nice chaser at the end of (laughs) 22 days of. 22 shows, then I'll just make up four shows uh, in front of an audience that will either love it or hate it. (laughs) Well, I have seen the documentary. And so in it, you're described by a number of your improv friends as being very private. And in fact, even on the Dead Eyes Wikipedia page, if you click on Connor Ratliff, it goes to the George Lucas talk show page. And if you click on Connor Ratliff on that page, it goes back to Dead Eyes. (laughs) I noticed that because I was like, do I? I think there was a point where somebody made a page for me and I think Wikipedia deleted it because I'm not worthy of having, like I'm not a notable enough person to have my own Wikipedia page, but my, the things I do didn't get cut. I really like that. It's just like, you're trying to find out who I am and it's like, he does this show. Yeah. But who is he? Well, he does this show. (laughs) Okay. I Um, had this exact problem because also like there is definitely enough content and notoriety for you to have your own page for sure. That's wild. Because half of these dead, like half of the dead eyed page off at the top is explaining like born in Missouri or like went to the school, blah, blah, blah. Like that's, something you put on a personal Wikipedia. The sheriffs of Wikipedia are (laughs) um, corrupt and petty. Mm -hmm. And when you start fighting with one, Mm. they they don't listen to reason. They double down. If you start saying, no, no, this is, and they'll be like, absolutely not. Not on my watch. Mr. Wikipedia, Um, give us the Connor Ratcliffe page. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, I do find that I am a private person, which is funny because so much of what I've done is forward facing and kind of like open book feeling. But part of that is because I became very aware when I started doing dead eyes and it started getting noticed that I'm like, I need to be careful about this because everything you give to the public belongs to them. Yeah. And that's just how it works. That like once the public knows a thing about you, it's just like me knowing a thing about, 
a famous person that I know it now and yeah. I can talk about it with my friends. I can post about it online, you know, whether I should is another question, but like you do at a certain point have to be very careful about what pieces of myself do I want to keep in my life and what pieces do I want to belong to anybody who has a phone. Mm-hmm. And at this point it's a choice to some extent because I don't mind being like accessible and having a forward facing profile when it comes to like comedy stuff, when it comes to pop culture stuff, but I'm not on a quest to become more known as a person except by the people who know me because once that belongs to everybody, I think it just gets confusing and messy really quickly. And you see it, you see it in people who become famous super quick. Yeah. And, and they, they lose their minds. They, they, it's so hard to handle because, you know, that also is tied to like the impulse to have everybody like you. Yeah. Which is not only impossible, it's an absurd goal. Like, do you want war criminals to like you? <laughs> like, like that's the, the sort of the, the that's at the far reaches of where you draw the line. But like, right. there has to be a line somewhere in terms of like, if you don't want people to know a thing that there are funny personal things about my life or my childhood that a decade ago I would have just posted something online, mm-hmm. and now I think about it just in terms of like, is this a text to my sister or is this an Instagram post? You know, <laughs> yeah, sure. And if you want it to just be the one thing, you can't have it be both. Mm-hmm. And I think, honestly, I think this is something that they should probably teach. I don't know whether they are, but they should probably teach it at acting school and, and play, yeah. any place that's training people to go out and be like forward facing in the world. Cause now we're starting to see all these things and I'm not someone who's like, Oh no, social media is destroying everything, but it is different. It's like, we don't know what it's like. I think about what it was like to grow up where the internet didn't exist and then it did. Mm-hmm. And the early part of the internet was just people typing stuff on to the computer. And you could like the early thing would be like going into my dad's office and going to like an Elvis Costello fan site. And like, they've got articles and then I print them out on my dad's work computer. And then I'd be like, the internet's great. I have like 50 pages of loose leaf paper that I could just read articles off of which mm-hmm. now is like you tell it to a, a kid now that is like stone age being they're like that's what's like a the, printer that's like the flintstones <laughs> level you know yeah prehistoric but i also think about how something would happen in you know like you discover something in 1990 and you'd be like what's this and there would be actually no way to find out what it is yeah you know i'll tell the short version of this but like when the show twin peaks came out i was in another country and they had the first episode of Twin Peaks for rent. And it was while the show was airing before they had solved Who Killed Laura Palmer. Okay. And I was so obsessed with Twin Peaks that I just rented this movie to watch it. Where I was allowed to like rent a movie when we were visiting relatives. And I was just re-watching the episode, not knowing that in Europe, for financing reasons, they had filmed the pilot of Twin Peaks. And part of their contract was you had to film an ending <gasps> that wrapped it up. So I'm just watching what I think is the first episode and I think, okay, it's over in about 30 seconds. And all of a sudden new scenes start happening. Oh my God. And they solve the mystery of who killed Laura Palmer. And I'm alone in a house in Ireland (laughs) with no no one to talk to. And then I get back to America and my friends who watch Twin Peaks, I'm like, let me try to explain this. (laughs) But it sounded like a dream where I like oh, yeah. I went into a video store and they had Twin Peaks first episode for rent. That already sounds made up at that yes. point. They, you just you just rent the first episodes of TV shows at a video rental store. Yeah. And then I'm like, and at the end of it, they solve it. And I'm describing how they solve it. And it makes no sense. <laughs> Bob is just a guy in the basement that they find and they shoot him and he dies immediately. And like, that's Twin Peaks. Wow. And it was years before I was able to look it up when the the internet had to come into existence (laughs) and had to exist long enough for someone to type the information that oh this is how david lynch got financing for that movie right but i think back to like three or four years where this just was this crazy thing that i couldn't explain yeah and you don't have that now and i'm not lamenting that i'm not but it is like different you know Mm -hmm. and so Privacy is at the center of all of those things, of how things are different now. It's the most 
different thing about our society in some ways is the way we communicate and that level of like, how much do you want people to know about you? Even in ways where it's like, if you're a jerk to somebody in a store and maybe you are a jerk in real life, maybe the world will know where you work within the hour. Right. Yeah. That might be a good thing because maybe it means people are not, decide not to treat retail workers terribly Sure, because hopefully. they're in a bad mood because guess what? I don't want the whole world to know how mean I am to strangers. Yes. And then maybe you break the habit. You stop being mean to strangers. That's yeah. a possibly a positive result. That's but the then ideal also version. Other people who are terrified all the time that they're, you know, <laughs> oh no, what if I, what if people find out about me who don't need to be worried, you know? Sure. Yeah. Sure. Well, you know, the documentary is not your only venture into movies. Back in March, they announced that you will be playing Mr. Rap in the movie adaptation of Mean Girls, the musical. How yes. did you come into this project and what can the audience expect to see? I don't know a lot about it because it's a small part. It has saved my year professionally because it was one of these beautiful situations where they needed me for a certain number of days but they didn't know which days. So they do a thing where they put you on hold <laughs> and you get paid whether whether you work or not. So it truly was, I had worked with the filmmakers who were directing the, because this is, there was the movie written by Tina Fey. Mm -hmm. Then they made a musical of it on Broadway. Yeah. And now they're making a movie of, of the, the musical, musical that's on Broadway. Yes. Yeah. Um, and Mr. Rap is a character that I, I has not been seen in the previous iterations of, Mean Girls is a new character. It's a small but fun role. But also they just needed me to be there because, you know, some of the teachers are played by people like John Hamm. They're played by, you know, they're bigger name people. And I think I was in some cases uh, someone that they could have just be in the background so that you, if you see these teachers in a scene or two, but then you see like, oh, that teacher's in the back of the cafeteria, then you assume all of these teachers are working in the school. Mm -hmm. So I had like a couple of days where I was filming where I'm just there. And then a lot of days where I didn't film or I'd go get called to sit in a trailer and they'd never get around to me. Oh, wow. And then at the very, very end of filming, they filmed my scene, my big scene. And it, I think it went well. It was one of those things where it was the last day of filming. So they're literally like, they filmed the class point of view where you see all the students and then they turn the camera around. And they're like, it's two in the morning. Are you okay if like half of these people like leave now while we film your angle where we don't see them? I'm like, absolutely. I don't need anybody. <laughs> 2 a.m. <laughs> yikes. But I think it's going to be really fun. I don't know when it's going to come out. I don't know when. I don't. I, I've heard that it's going to be like streaming on Paramount Plus, and that's how it'll come out. I kind of hope it gets a theatrical release, just because based on what I saw in filming, I think this would be a very fun movie to see in a theater. So even if it does, I, I have this hope that I feel like we we have years of lost theatrical movies that go straight to streaming that some of these things should get revival. There are movies that came out either during the pandemic or since that I feel like need to show up in a theater at some point. At some point, someone can do a whole festival where it's just like the movies of 2020, sure. you know, that like you never saw like news of the world was a Tom Hanks movie that it came out in theaters pre vaccine or like what was the one where he's in space with the dog Finch, which is like an Apple TV plus movie oh. that I'm like, this is a big dystopian sci-fi movie. I'd like to see it in a theater. Mm -hmm. But I hope that Mean Girls, I think it's going to be a lot of fun. I'm extremely grateful. It was one of the things that I don't think I got it off of Dead Eyes, but it, it helped. I think it was one of those things where when the when the filmmakers were like, how about Connor Ratliff? Everybody was like, oh, Dead Eyes. Yes. Nice. Where yeah. it's sort of like. He can play this dead-eyed teacher. <laughs> Fantastic. Well, we're so excited to see your work in Mean Girls the Musical. In the meantime, though, you can catch more of Connor at the Edinburgh Fringe Festival, where he and Griffin Newman are doing 22 nights of their new play, The Baron and the Junk Dealer, from August 2nd to the 24th. If you need something a little closer to home, you can stream the entirety of Dead Eyes on Spotify and Apple Podcasts right now and watch episodes of the George Lucas Talk Show on YouTube. Thanks so much for joining us, Connor. Are you ready to play some games? Absolutely. I'm ready. First up is One Star Reviews, the game where we take amateur letterboxed reviews from three separate movies. They're One Star Reviews, they're very bad, and it's your job, Connor Ratliff, to guess what movie the review is talking about. Are you ready? I am ready. If you're ready, Lucia, read out the clues. Okay, well, the category is George Lucas Films, and the first review is, I enjoy a train wreck as much as the next person. 
I would have thought a film that went so far as to include voluptuous breasts on a duck would have been more entertaining. All right. This, yeah, this is Howard the Duck. If it's not, then I need to do some research. <laughs> you uh, are correct. It's ding, Howard ding, the Duck. Correct. It's a great, it's a great tell. I, at first, I was like, this could be a lot of movies. Uh, <laughs> fantastic. Yeah. Okay. So the, number... first, the first Marvel movie. Yes. Um, okay. So number two. This was an oil-soaked, burger-munching, gas-guzzling, imperialistic hellhole. Still, it's pretty good for a movie about teenagers driving around saying hello to each other. American Graffiti. Yes! Very good. Unsurprisingly, you know your George Lucas films. (laughs) Great film, great film. Yeah, absolutely. Okay, and then the last one. It's like George Lucas asked himself, why must a movie be good? Is it not enough to see a shirtless Anakin Skywalker shrug off his bathrobe? Well, now the trick is... Which of those movies? It's either two or three. <laughs> mm-hmm. I'm going to assume it's Attack of the Clones, episode two, but I could be wrong. The bathroom could be in episode three. Uh, I'm going to go with. I'm going to go with Attack of the Clones, even though I could be wrong. I'm sorry. Episode... It was episode Star three? Wars episode three: Revenge of the Sith. Yeah, I just those two movies blur together for me. Uh, for most. So I don't feel too much. I don't feel too much shame about not knowing. Uh, I, I also, when I'm pretending to be George Lucas and I get caught out making a mistake like that, I'm always just able to pawn it off on like, how am I supposed to keep track of it? You know, I'm sure I've George Lucas makes mistakes about George Lucas movies. He must. He's yeah. human. It's the right one to get wrong. Um, yeah. I snuck that one in there because I'm like, the trick here will be which one. So. Yeah. <laughs> Okay, so that's it for one-star reviews. Two out of three. Not a bad score at all. Two out of three. It's a win. Moving on to out of the box. The year in question is the year 2000. We will be giving you the five highest grossing movies worldwide for the year 2000, which is the year that you got fired from the movie Mm -hmm. with Tom Hanks, and you talk about it on your podcast, Dead Eyes. We thought it was relevant and poignant to your story. Um, In the year 2000, there were five highest grossing movies, and it's your job to tell us which were the top three in order. Mm. Okay. Here come the titles. Great. Number one was What Women Want. Mm-hmm. Gladiator. Okay. Mission Impossible 2. All right. Castaway. Ooh. And Dinosaur, which is a movie I've never heard of, but is in there. I think it's a Disney animated movie. Dinosaur. Well, there's the good dinosaur, which is many years oh, later. Oh, that's probably what I'm thinking of. I'm trying of. to think what dinosaur... And are all these were the top five? These were the top five? These are the top five, not in order. So you're going to pick out the top three and then put them in order. I'm going to assume because I haven't heard of Dinosaur and I have no memory of Dinosaur coming out that it's number five on that list. I know I'm not playing for number five. I'm going to say Gladiator, Mission Impossible 2, and Castaway. Wow. I, I could be wrong. I never saw What Women Want, and I don't have a real sense that it was bigger than it might have been. I'm going to go with it. I, I feel like Gladiator was the top. I feel like Mission Impossible 2 would be second. And I feel like Castaway. I could really be botching this if What Women Want made a lot more than I think it did. Go with but your I'm gut. I'm going to go with it. That's my answer. I'm going with my gut. You know what? It's interesting because you have the top three. You have it. The order's wrong. So Mission Impossible 2 is number one? You know what? I'll give you a second chance because this game is hard. Rearrange them because those are the top three. Mission Impossible 2, Gladiator, Castaway? Absolutely correct. Ding, Very ding, ding. good. <laughs> wow. It's funny. I would have thought that Gladiator, by winning Best Picture, that would have driven it over. But, of course, Mission Impossible movies. And that's probably my least – I have my least uh, memories of what even ha- – I think he's hanging <laughs> on the side of the cliff in that one. I but, don't remember yeah. that one. <laughs> but it is it is I'm, correct. That game is really tricky. Not a lot of people get – a lot of points on it because it's like not everyone is is your your co-star who's a savant um but yeah what is dinosaur what is dinosaur i don't know I i'm gonna have to look it up after we're I looked done it recording up. the poster was like an eye of a real like a photorealistic dinosaur <laughs> yeah see isn't it a disney movie i, I think it is I can't, I can't recall the fact that it was that big and i have genuinely no memory <laughs> of it is crazy to me I can picture the poster, but I definitely never saw it. D.B. Sweeney, Juliana Margulies. It is animated. Okay. That is crazy. <laughs> yeah. 
I thought it was crazy because it was a year with so many like again like sequels and blockbusters that I was like, how did Dinosaur get up there? Must have had one hell of a marketing team. <laughs> yeah, I mean it's got great like Alfred Woodard, Ozzy Davis. Oh wow, uh, it's got great voice cast: Joan Plowright, Della Reese. I think we all need to go and watch Dinosaur tonight. Honestly, this feels like one of those Mandela effect things. Yes, yeah. like. <laughs> One of these movies has been uh, uh, inserted into your memory or something. Yes. Inserted into reality, but you didn't experience it the first time around. Yeah, I also, the thing about 2000 for me, which I'm, is that I was in England and then moved to America. So my experience of 2000 would have been a little bit disjointed in terms of what movies came out at what mm. time and where. Yeah. And yet was you back, got it right. Yeah. Well, I'm very proud to have gotten it right. <laughs> a very good job. Well done. So much fun talking to you today, Connor. Thank you so much for joining us. All the best with all of your upcoming projects and your really exhausting to even think about shows at the Edinburgh Festival, which are, I'm sure, going to be amazing. Thank you so much. It's great talking with you. All right. Well, I hope you enjoyed that episode of Movie Night with Sif with special guest Connor Ratliff. It was a real joy to get to speak with him. And next month, we're back to the usual format with repodcasting, and I will have as my special guest co-hosts, Avery and Lena, they'll be back, and we will be recasting the 1996 Baz Luhrmann movie, Romeo and Juliet. So watch the movie in the meantime, recast along with us, and if you want to send me an email, you can do so at repodcasting at gmail.com or on social media stuffs at repodcasting. Thank you so much and see you next month. Bye.